This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Chris Edgington, president of the National Corn Growers Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Iowa's Chris Edgington next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 445 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Several hundred leaders and delegates of the National Corn Growers Association were in Washington last week for their Summer Corn Congress and to visit with congressional leaders on Capitol Hill. NCGA President Chris Edgington says ethanol was at the top of their agenda items. We're looking to grow that demand, and we've got a great bill out there on the House, and, and the Senate is trying to put together a companion bill. So that, that's going to be right at the forefront. Um, obviously, then we talk about farm bill. It's getting to be farm bill season. Um, it'll probably be written next year, the way things are looking, but they're holding hearings, and including one where uh, the Vice President, Tom Hag uh, talked about crop insurance. Obviously, we're going to talk about input costs, fertilizer, uh, and chemistries that are causing problems. Uh, atrazine is a big issue. Um, we've created a call to action for atrazine and, and what's going on with the EPA. Chris, let's go into the Farm Bill of 23. Uh, last week, we had Steve Sensky, the CEO of the American Soybean Association, with us. And at the top of the discussion on Farm Bill, uh, Steve said, do no harm. Would you echo those comments? Yeah, I mean, we hear some things that growers would like to maybe make some tweaks to, but we don't hear any landslide changes. Um, crop insurance is still number one. Um, do, not tying conservation practices to crop insurance is, is a big deal. Um, there's people that want to have discussions around, you know, the Title I programs with ARC and PLC and base acres, and, and those will all happen in due time. Uh, there's there's uh, people doing studies and analysis of of if it, you make a change, what does that mean? Because um, what we heard um, on the Hill was um, the dollars are probably going to be the same. So if you want to change something within the program, you're going to be swapping from one area to the other. And uh, there's no question that, that farmers, and at least in the corn industry, say the crop insurance is number one. So... We're not going to swap out of that. Chris, what work has been done thus far by the corn growers uh, pointing toward the 23 bill? And how soon would you anticipate you're going to roll out your recommendation or wants uh, for that new policy? We met last week with the committee that oversees that, and they worked through several issues. And, and we actually had a resolution about, you know, do we change a couple things? And they they, they did not pass, um, and, but they were kind of referred back to the committee um, one's about base acres, that there's a discussion around that. Um, and then there's also the reference price. And so, you know, next winter we'll have a, a new House Ag Committee. They, we know there will be some people change. There will be uh, potentially changes in leadership. You don't, you never know um, on that for sure. And, and then we meet again in March. And, and so sometime 
after the first of the year and in that March time frame, we're going to really have, this is where we need to be. This is the, this is our, our push for the bill because most people say that that's going to be a, a good window to be prepared. They're looking August, September to maybe finally get it completely wrote a year from now. Um, so if we're ready with our information mid, mid to late winter, um, I think that's going to be a good time window for us. You have already seen uh, some groups start to point a tax toward crop insurance and, again, bringing in a means test uh, where there, there would be a limit uh, in the amount of subsidy that would be offered or in some way curtail the benefit that goes toward the largest producer. How do the corn growers feel about making changes, introducing a means test to crop insurance? Honestly, Jeff, it's not, it's not even been into our, into a real good discussion with us. I, I just heard about that, uh, last week at the very end of the week. It'll be one of the things that we'll have to weigh and balance. You know, it's not just corn that has crop insurance. There's lots of commodities that are involved in that. And, and you, uh, you know, people think that, that corn is, is a lot of dollars and it can be, but some of these specialty crops that are, do fall under crop insurance, um, the dollars rack up actually a lot, a lot faster on some of that. So I think that'll be a discussion that the ag groups will have uh, overall, probably next winter, um, as they as they all kind of work together on, on what are the most important things in the next farm bill for all of us. Chris, the ranking member on the House Ag Committee has entertained the thought of maybe shifting uh, farm programs toward margin coverage. There is one thought of moving away from the reference price and the existing, as we know, toward a margin situation between input prices and commodity prices. Uh, do you have thoughts on that? Well, Jeff, you know, there, currently there is a margin insurance that farmers can buy for crops. One of the big challenges with it, and this is probably why there's not been that many people involved, is you have to make that decision in, in like September of this year for next year. And that really is a long time out um, for a lot of people to think about their crop insurance program. And But, you know, that, that is available. It's not gotten a lot of traction. Um, and uh, it goes right along with, you know, any type of other crop insurance program you buy. So if, if some way, some reason, that's where things trended, obviously there's going to be a huge amount of education involved. And there, there honestly probably needs to be more trial run as to how does this work across a larger area, across multiple commodities, um, if, you're, if you're looking at something like that. Now, I know that, you know, there's been a little bit of something like that, I think, over in the dairy side, and it's taken them a long time to get that to where it's workable for everybody that's involved. In principle, it sounds good in the fact that it gives you some coverage between Input costs, which this year skyrocketed for crop farmers, and also commodity prices that have proven more than once that they can be tremendously volatile and aren't necessarily tied to those input costs. It is a scenario that is very complex with price discovery on both sides of that equation. Not an easy measure. Right. I've actually looked into that program, been involved in it a little bit. And it really is. There, there are a lot of moving pieces. I mean, a lot of moving pieces. And that's one of the advantages of the current program is it's pretty much based on price and yield. And, you know, you get two factors. Um, and if the, if, uh, 
the yield is bad because Mother Nature didn't treat you very very well, um, you know, you've got a, a price that was set, um, you know, usually in February uh, to work with. So it's, it's much easier to manage. Um, I do think if it ever did grow into a real uh, nationwide type of program, um, they're going to have to find some ways to make it easier to manage for all parties. I heard you say, and I have heard others say as well, that we've been told that the 23 bill, the price tag, uh, don't expect additional dollars. But where would that leave research, and what would your calls for uh, spending and research be? Well, we always need more research. Um, and it's always one of those things that, you know, it, it never wins the, uh, the top of the award in a popularity contest. Um, never has, probably never will. And yet you won't find anybody in any field that feels you should do away with research. So we will push to continue the funding, you know, at the current level for sure. And we would prefer to find some additional dollars for that. Um, and that's, that's always a challenge. It goes back to our discussion. Do you give up something to get more dollars in research? Um, uh, but you know, we've got a lot of great, uh, activity that's happened in, in research under the farm bill. And we're going to continue to push to, to keep moving that forward. Chris, don't you find it a paradox that on one side, uh, government spends money, land-grant universities spend money in research, private industry spends millions and millions in research, but yet today we have consumer pushback to some of those new sciences, and we also have additional attempts now, even within the regulatory environment of EPA, to take away some of the tools that you and other commodity organizations have said are essential to your ability to produce sustainably. It's really a big topic, and and you're right. The EPA did it again to us here a few weeks ago where they lowered the threshold on atrazine from 15 parts per billion down to 3.4. And the preliminary numbers that I've seen, that will affect over 70% of the corn acres, and people think of, of products as standalone type activity, whereas atrazine is actually blended with many other crop chemical products, and the synergies are really, really good, where you don't have to use a full rate of any of them, um, and you get good weed control, and it's in over 60 products, it's over 60 years old, it's been researched and researched, and yet they continue to try to beat it up and beat it down. Um, and so we, we've, we've issued a call to action on atrazine and, and to let the EPA know, um, the, how this is going to affect each and indiv- each individual farmer in their situation. Um, and it's, it's a tremendous toolbox. And what happens is if you take an atrazine, if you take a glyphosate out of the toolbox, then you've got other rates, other chemicals that you probably have to go to full rate. Um, you may have to do some other things and honestly, tillage could come back. Um, and the last thing that a lot of people want is more tillage. They would prefer the, the shift that has been ongoing for a long time towards conservation tillage or no-till or strip-till, you know, the addition of cover crops for some people. And so taking these tools out of the toolbox just make it more difficult to do that because we don't develop new chemistries very fast. Um, it is it is a very very slow process, and so losing what we have that are tried and true and proven uh, to be very effective for us creates some real challenges. Chris, can you be as effective with production 
and as sustainable for the environment if these tools are taken away? You know, I think we can probably get there on production or close in a lot of areas, but the environment's the one that I'm, I'm more worried about because tillage is going to come back. Weed control is going to suffer. To do that, guys are going to bring cultivators back out. They're going to do more tillage in the spring before planting as a, as the first blush to knock weeds down. You're going to have the potential more wind, more water erosion challenges. So that, that's the side that I really worry about. I think we can probably get there on production in most situations. There may be a few that we aren't, but in most situations we can probably get there. But I really feel we're going to have increased tillage if this happens. Staying with the debate about the farm bill, I see one side. uh, I see uh, a a tremendous push toward conservation uh, and climate and carbon sequestration. And then I hear the call from the producer to maintain risk protection, uh, to give you tools to be able to manage against uh, forces that you can't control. Do you see a battle line forming here? I do. I, I really do. I, I think you phrased that well. You want more of this, but you have to use less of that. Somewhere the rubber meets the road, and, you know, farmers, are, we're business people, and we've got to balance input costs and to get, you know, crop revenue and crop production. And you will do what you need to do to generate enough uh, crop to be able to have the revenue to pay all your bills. When we talk to farmers, it's clear that export markets and access to foreign markets is key for the success. We talk about selling our product to global customers. But I think the avenue of trade now takes another level when we start thinking about inputs because we don't produce enough fertilizer here in the U.S. to satisfy the demand of farmers. Does trade take a different dimension now? Well, you know, it's on several different fronts. And every one of those products of the main three with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash have different suppliers that are both domestic and international. And we need them all because we do not produce enough domestically. And so, you know, we've had tariff situations and still have an ongoing tariff situation with phosphorus and mosaics filing with the ITC um, uh, with tariffs in Morocco and Russia. Um, we're fighting that. We're, we're in court to fight that. Um, we're having some small uh, successes. And then you've got, you know, UAN fertilizer that CF Industries tried to do a tariff on, and we got a win. Uh, we got a win on this. The, uh, the international said, nope. Uh, we are not going to allow that to continue. They actually reversed the decision that they had made a couple months ago, um, and we we had a chance to to testify in front of them. Uh, one of our producers from Nebraska, Andy Jobman, did a great job of talking about you know what effect this has on the farm. This is an area, Jeff, that we have never been involved in before. It is not an area they expect the end buyer, which is the farmer, to be pushing back. And we've had some really interesting conversations with CF Industries and Mosaic um, that they've told us that we're not their customer. Their customer is, is the, the large co-op that distributes to us. And that's kind of an eye-opening statement when a, when a fertilizer giant doesn't recognize that the farmer at the end of the day is their customer. And then you slide over, you know, into the potash world, and, and potash comes from primarily three different countries, and and Canada being one of them, fortunately, we have good relationships there, um, other than some trucker challenges crossing the border. 
But, you know, the other two are Russia and Belarus. And there's challenges and big challenges. It depends on, on which day you're in which country you're talking about. Obviously, things with Russia, Russia are at standstill. Um, so fertilizer and inputs are uh, they're going to be a challenge again as we move forward. But we are making some wins um, and some, some progress that I think will show up this fall for the farmer. Chris, when we talk about 23, obviously Farm Bill comes to mind, but what about 23 inputs? Is that a concern for you? Is that a concern for your growers? It is. Prices have not come down, back down that much from where we were last uh, spring and, and midwinter and even for anhydrous last fall. So the input costs are going to be up. Everybody's already stealing themselves for what do I do? Do I put on less fertilizer? Do we try to use less seed? Um Guys, you're talking about doing less tillage in the fall um, or trying to let the corn stand longer before they have to buy LP, which is probably going to be in short supply this winter or this fall again, which is really tough because the corn crop's behind compared to a couple of years, last couple of years. Um, we planted it later. It's in our world up here, it's going to take more LP. We're going to be drying more. Um, so you can only let it stand for so long. So they are they are concerned about all of that. There are, you know, the prices have taken a, a real glide um, as far as what we can get for the crop over the last 30 days as we've been producing this one. And so, it's an, you know, as I tell people, farmers are involved with three crops simultaneously. You're involved with last year's crop until you have every bushel sold out of the bin. You're obviously involved in this year's crop because you're in the middle of producing it. But we're already working on the next crop and the input costs and all of that. And, you know, it, all of this is ongoing all the time. And a lot of people don't understand that you're really balancing three different scenarios um, at any one time. Chris, if you could have an audience with the president, what would your counsel be on trade and trade agreements? Every time we get a good trade agreement or a trade agreement that turns into a free trade agreement, it benefits the United States. They are they are good we are a country that has less than 4% of the population that knows how to produce, and not just in agriculture, in a lot of products. And we need to be able, able to export. We need to be able to trade because there's also a lot of things that are not made um, here in the United States or they're seasonal. And you think about your, your local grocery store in, in the dead of winter, and it's got fresh tomatoes, fresh fruit. That, that, for the most part, did not come from the United States. It came from somewhere else, and that is a, a, a privilege and a pleasure to have that, um, but it does come with trade agreements and trade activity. And, you know, whether we're selling number two yellow corn or we're selling one of the 4,000 products that we process out of corn, you know, including ethanol and, and distiller's grains, um, some of the big ones that people think of, but we, we make a lot of other ones. We need trade, and we need more of it. Chris, from the outside looking in, it seems as though renewable fuel groups like corn growers and ethanol have been fighting tooth and nail to hold Washington's feet to the fire to follow through with the existing renewable fuel standard. But then from the cheap seats, you look around and see tremendous enthusiasm for the next generation of biofuels. What was your message as you talked to members of Congress about the energy needs of the country and the farmer's ability uh, to be able to supply it? Well, there's, you know, there's a couple fronts here, Jeff. A, um, we have a great product. It's 
che- lower. It's more economical for the consumer. It's better for the environment. Um, it's renewable. It's domestic. So you know those products are there every year. Um, the the ability of the corn farmer to continue to hit the targets is is proven. We add about 180 million bushels of corn every year to the corn supply as our as our yields increase across the industry. So we need a place for that to go. Renewable fuels is an easy um, place to look at it. But we're also involved in things like renewable diesel, biodiesel, sustainable aviation fuel, future fuels that will help both the environment and the consumer as as well as um, being able to be a renewable product that we don't need to import from anywhere else. As much talk as there is about climate and climate smart and sustainability, it would seem that renewable fuel would have an easy place at the table, but I'm not seeing that lately. You know, we're not a new shiny toy, Jeff. That's one of the things. Electric vehicles are new and shiny, and people are excited about them, and, and they're going to fit for some people in some situations, but they're not going to fit for a whole lot of other people. The internal combustion engine is going to be here for a long, long time. So let's work with the products that can help make that engine the most efficient, the most environmentally safe, Think you know, that fall into the renewable fuels industry world. And it's uh, it's just something that, yep, we continue to educate um, and we continue to talk about the benefits. And we don't go backwards, you know, fortunately, very often. Um, so we just, it's a slow slow climb it's one of those that that the singles are are what's probably going to win the game most of the time uh, because we will we will probably not at this point uh, in this um, industry hit many home runs it's going to be single 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 chris the last three administrations have struggled with their own definition of what land is covered by the nation's water laws and regulations Deja vu all over again to stay with the baseball term. WERDA is still at play, not only in the halls of the EPA, but also at the Supreme Court. What message comes from the corn growers on this topic? You know, we have been at this a long time. And, and honestly, the 2020 version, the 2019, you know, but I think they call it 2020, we're okay with that version. That's a version that's manageable. Um, the version that they're talking about potentially now versus the one that was in the Obama uh, administration, those are not very manageable. Um, you get a puddle. You get water standing in your road ditch for a day, and they're wanting to say that that is uh, uh, navigable waters. It's not. Um, it doesn't even come close to, to being that. And that's, that's one of our challenges. And, and that's why when we got to the 2020 version, um, it was much more of things that are navigable on, on something more than a, than a rubber ducky. And so we, uh, we're pushing to stay there. Um, we continue to, to address people's concerns about this or that. You know, farmers are one of the largest environmental groups out there, but people don't recognize that because we are multi-generational deep. We have farms in, in our area that have been owned by the same family for 150 years and have been farmed continuously. Do they farm the way they did 50 years ago? Absolutely not. Will they farm different in 15 or 20 years? Probably. But we continue to evolve, and those things help the environment. They help the air. They help the water. And 
when they when they come in and want to put regulations in that just don't work well with Mother Nature, um, it, it's a real challenge for us. Well, Chris Edgington, you have plenty on your plate with your own operation and certainly in and work with the National Corn Growers Association as their lead. We want to thank you for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. Chris, it is Open Mic, and today you've got the last word. Well, Jeff, first I'd just like to say thank you for the work that your industry does on, on getting the good word out about we as what we as corn growers do, both as an association and simply as farmers. And I, I encourage all of my fellow farmers and I encourage everybody involved in agriculture one way or the other to be active, to be engaged, because we're a small group but we're pretty mighty when we're all engaged. So everybody have a safe rest of the summer, and we'll talk to you again. Our thanks to Chris Edgington, president of the National Corn Growers Association, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Galley.